You're listening to ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Pediophilia is our topic. How do you treat the children who are the victims? And is there any effective treatment for the pediophile himself? Why does the predator repeat their acts until a single pediophile may have victimized dozens of children before being apprehended? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Ryan C. Hall. Dr. Hall is a senior resident from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at John Hopkins University and the current Rappaport Fellow from the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law. His father is Dr. Richard Hall, who was a courtesy clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Florida. And together, they've just published a paper in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings entitled, A Profile of Pediophilia. Today, we're discussing the treatment of pediophilia for the victims, the treatment, and also the treatment for the pediophile himself. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today, Dr. Hall. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us which children are most likely to be affected by abuse and to maybe have the greatest psychological damage? Is that a pattern? Well, it's kind of hard to say because each individual is unique and can have different levels of resilience. Uh, but when you look at the literature, when abuse occurs from a father figure, uh, occurs as a forced rape situation, or occurs over a, period, a long period of time, there's much more likely to be uh, psychiatric sequelae from it. Also, in a strange way, when there's incest abuse and you have a sibling who is or isn't abused, there can be notions of survivor guilt. You know, why didn't I do something to protect my sister or why my sister or not me? Uh, which also raises interesting issues that are sometimes forgot. But generally, when you look at the victims of pediatric abuse or child abuse sexually, um, you can see higher levels of depression, neurosis, and uh, trauma when you look at standardized scales. And this can be as children or even as they grow up as adults. Other issues that you can see with them that may not necessarily fit in a nice diagnostic category is problems with uh, long-term intimacy issues, feelings of guilt or shame, uh, lower levels of education and lower levels of employment. And it's not always clear if that's necessarily due to the abuse or if that's a marker for, you know, vulnerabilities that may have led to the child being abused in the first place. What are the signs that these children need treatment? Well, when you're running into children and or adults, actually, because a lot of times, you know, what happens to you as a kid can come back and haunt you later in life is uh, issues with anxiety, uh, if they're experiencing panic attacks, clear signs of depression, including uh, suicidal ideation or attempts, uh, loss of normal uh, sexual desire or drive, uh, chronic irritability, or uh, social delays like uh, developing a school phobia or being outgoing and then withdrawing back. Uh, these are all signs that what has happened to them has you know, impaired their functioning. Uh, and again, some people can have bad things happen to them, have a brief period where they have an abnormal response, but then cope and come back. And you want to keep an eye out for the people who don't regroup. Uh, those are the ones that will need treatment down the road. And how do you treat these kids? What works and what doesn't? Well, I mean, a lot of times you can do some uh, basic uh, psychotherapy approaches, you know, so you can do some short-term interventions at the time of the therapy, kind of helping the person realize what happened to them, what it means, and if they are experiencing any, you know, adverse symptoms such as trouble sleeping or bad dreams, kind of saying, you know, usually these things get better with time, but if they don't, then you need to go to a more in-depth form of uh, psychotherapy or approach. 
and depending what condition the patient develops, different therapies may be beneficial. Uh, there's a lot in the literature on using cognitive behavioral therapy for uh, PTSD and rape victims, and that's usually about a 10 to a 12, you know, session where you will go through uh, exposure-type therapy and, you know, again, trying to readdress or relive the event so it's less terrifying to the person. Uh, in adults, a lot of times, insight-oriented uh, or supportive psychotherapy therapy can be helpful to deal with issues of what does it mean, how will this affect me later, what will this mean to me being a parent to my own children. It's sometimes a little harder to do insight-oriented therapy with younger kids, though. And if there appears to be severe depression or anxiety or other things, uh, medications may be appropriate, uh, such as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, or uh, Effexor, Cymbalta, things along those lines. Again, though, it depends on the individual, and it depends on, you know, how old they are and how they're adapting. Are there other approaches to the treatment of pedophilia? Are any of them controversial? Well, when we're talking about treating the uh, the pedophile himself, again, there's usually a multidisciplinary approach that's taken. You know, therapy is can be very helpful at times, and this can be either individual or group-based therapy. And again, a lot of times we use a cognitive behavioral uh, focus with the pedophile, looking at their uh, distortions, their denials, their rationalizations, and challenging them on that. You also try and look at impulse control issues, and for a long time there was doing a lot with empathy training, uh, because it was felt that pedophiles suffered from an inability to relate to their victims. I think the empathy training may be being downplayed a little more in current dealings with uh, pedophiles with a little more focus on dealing with the distortions. And the goal of the therapy is not necessarily to convert the orientation, but to stop a reoffense. You know, and they've tried to do aversion therapy and things along those lines with pedophiles. And some of the people who are diehards in the field say that it works, but some of the other folks who I think are maybe not as invested in the treatment have had trouble replicating those studies. Uh, then there's a lot of pharmacologic options out there, such as chemical castration, and then there's also physical castration. And as a quasi-funny side note, I mean, the state of Texas is the only state I'm aware of that will pay for sexual offenders to be physically castrated, but not pay for chemical castration. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Ryan Hall, and we're discussing the treatment of pedophiles and the treatment of their victims. Dr. Hall, can you tell us something about the pros and cons of pharmacological treatment? Well, usually when we're discussing pharmacologic treatment here, we mean the uh, chemical castration. And the agents they use for that is metoxyprogesterone, uh, luparide, uh, luteinizing releasing hormones, and gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists. And the gonadotropin-releasing uh, is really kind of becoming the standard of care nowadays. The advantages to using uh, chemical castration is that, you know, you have to have medical follow-up to engage in it. You have to have psychiatric follow-up. And although it's a little bit of a controversial area, it's reversible. So if you have an individual who, let's say, offended when he was 21, has been engaged in treatment for the past 10 to 15 years, and has married and says, you know, my wife would really like to have a child, I'd like to stop my treatment in order to have a child and then go back on it. That's something that can be done. Where if you do physical castration, it's permanent. Now, the disadvantage 
Actually, one of the other advantages to chemical castration is people seem to be a little more receptive to engaging in therapy uh, when they're on the medicines. And these medicines kind of help stop the drive and the urges a little bit. It doesn't necessarily change the interest, but it lowers it down and makes it easier to engage in the therapy. Because don't some of these behaviors have roots that go all the way back to the childhood? They can. And, you know, it becomes an interesting question. Is this a genetic thing? Is this nature versus nurture? I always kind of take the view that it's both. It's not one or the other. And what happens to us in childhood affects us into adulthood. But we really haven't found any one set stressor or circumstance that will default into pedophilia. There's a lot of people who have been abused as kids who don't become pedophiles, and there's a lot of people who were abused as kids that do become pedophiles. So it kind of gets into that resilience factor. Yes. What other pharmacological treatments besides chemical castration can be effective? Well, there's a couple of uh, open-label studies and anecdotal reports looking at uh, SSRIs, uh, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And, uh, you know, every psychiatrist will tell you that one of the known side effects of those medications is they have the potential to reduce libido in people with depression or other conditions. So there's a question if the benefit is just due to a known side effect of it. One of the other thoughts is is it may help with uh, impulse controls, especially when people are under periods of stress. And it's been reported that pedophiles are much more likely to offend against children when they feel stressed or are in a stressful situation. And the SSRIs may also help if the pedophile has an underlying mood disorder. And as I always tell my patients that I see clinically, you know, depression makes everything worse. So if we can treat an underlying depression, it may also help deal with uh, urges and make people more uh, responsive to treatment and follow-up and compliance. A new drug which is really looked at, and it's really mostly anecdotal right now, is topramate, which is actually a seizure medication, uh, but it blocks various ion channels, calcium channels, and has effect on dopamine release in the midbrain. And they've been using it in treatment of other forms of addiction, such as uh, gambling or kleptomania. And it's also been shown to be helpful in some of the other paraphilias. Uh, And usually you're looking at a dose of 50 to 200 milligrams, and you have to be on it for about six to eight weeks period of time before you may begin to see a decrease in urges and desires. As you mentioned, uh, the paraphilias, can you tell us a little more about what we see with paraphilias in this population? Well, a lot of the times uh, people who are pedophiles will suffer from uh, more than one just uh, paraphilia. So they'll be into uh, voyeurism, which is uh, watching. Uh, they'll be into uh, freudarism, which technically is the un- is rubbing your genitalia against an unknowing individual. A lot of times, though, it gets used in a broader sense of just rubbing your genitalia against someone. And you also can sometimes run into a little bit of uh, the cross-dressing uh, issues as well. The more deviant the behaviors people are into, and I I hesitate to use that word, but I think it's the one that most people will understand and appreciate what I mean the best, the higher the likelihood of reoffense. So when you're dealing with pedophiles, it's important to look at their other interests and their other sexual issues and discuss that in therapies or when using medications to see if those drives reduce as well. What always surprised me is when you look at a lot of the data and literature on recidivism, pedophiles are the group that's most likely to offend later in life. A lot of the other paraphilias kind of drop out as you age, and you do see a bit of a decrease with pedophilia as you age, but you don't see the same level of decrease. You know, our audience right now is both primary care providers, specialists, but what overall, what do we need to know about reporting and reporting laws for our personal life, for our professional life? 
there's a mandatory reporting for sexual abuse in all 50 states. Now, the exact specifics of each state's laws can vary a little bit. Uh, so what I recommend your uh, listeners do is, uh, if they have questions for their particular state, is either contact their uh, Department of Social Services, or they can look on the website www.childwelfare.gov. And on there, they have a summary of the uh, state laws, which can be helpful or at least a good place to start. Uh, and then the other thing to know about reporting is being able to do a thorough evaluation of the uh, child, or at least getting the initial data to help people who may do a further evaluation. So how many times did it occur? Where did it occur? Were other people involved? You want to get information that can help identify any other potential victims so they, too, can get help. And, you know, there's a, a great article that was done by Kellogg that's in uh, Pediatrics in 2005, uh, which is Child Abuse and Neglect, the Evaluation of Sexual Abuse in Children. Now, that's looking a little more at the physical exam, but it also addresses some of these other issues. Dr. Hall, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Ryan Hall has been our guest today, and we've been discussing the treatment options in pedophilia. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.